Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's reign, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of death and mummification. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was 1246 BCE, and tense negotiations were underway between Egypt and the Hittite Empire. To avoid breaking their peace, the Hittite king agreed to marry his daughter to Ramses II, the current pharaoh of Egypt. Though her exact age is unknown, the princess was young and beautiful. However, after many expensive military and infrastructure campaigns, Ramses was less interested in the bride than her dowry, which was still up for negotiation. Since all communication was done by messenger, the haggling took weeks. Each message had to travel hundreds of miles between Hattusa and the Egyptian capital of Pyramus. Finally, the agreement was made and the princess undertook the long journey to Pyramus. She was accompanied by her mother and servants, as well as a trove of cattle and gold. Three months after leaving Hattusa, her caravan finally arrived in Egypt's capital. The princess came face to face with her new husband, Ramses II, but it was hardly love at first sight. The pharaoh immediately counted the dowry and shipped his new bride off to his harem. It was clear Ramses was concerned with only one thing, maintaining his power and his pleasure. He wouldn't hesitate to use anyone for his own gratification, including his family. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last week, we explored Ramsey's tutelage under his father, his vain pursuit of monument building, and the onset of war between Egypt and the Hittite Empire. This week, we'll look at the outcome of the Battle of Kadesh, the diplomatic fight between Ramses and the Hittites, and his unique legacy. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. 
1279 BCE, the young Ramses II became pharaoh of Egypt. As ambitious as he was narcissistic, Ramses sought to outdo all other kings who had come before him. From the Nile Delta to Nubia, Ramses ordered the construction of grand monuments and temples that celebrated his rule. In doing so, he rewrote the past to suit his will. On some monuments his father started, he didn't even mention his father's name and only displayed his own. Like the heretic pharaoh Akhenaten, Ramses portrayed himself as a living god. In sacred temples, he had his image placed alongside those of the gods Amun, Raharakti, and Ptah. He also built a new capital city for Egypt. But unlike Akhenaten, who named his capital after his beloved deity, Ramses named his city after himself. No other pharaoh in ancient Egypt's over 2,000-year history was more skilled at the art of self-promotion. None left as many standing monuments behind as Ramses II. Though he was pompous and arrogant, Ramses was also energetic, strong-willed, and tough. These traits became very useful as Egypt faced the possibility of a major war. In 1275 BCE, the fourth year of his reign, Ramses launched a campaign in Syria to reassert Egyptian dominance. The rebellious city of Kadesh was a particular thorn in his side. Kadesh had allied with the Hittite Empire, a rival superpower based in modern-day Turkey. The Hittites stationed troops there, which infuriated Ramses. He gathered a force of 20,000 Egyptian soldiers and marched toward Kadesh. His army consisted of four divisions, and Ramses himself led the vanguard. While these troops marched over land toward Kadesh, a reserve force of elite charioteers was sent by sea up to the port of Sumer. Once they arrived, they were to travel inland and join up with Ramses on the same day he arrived at Kadesh. However, splitting the divisions meant that if anything went wrong in transit, Ramses would be without his most elite soldiers. We don't know why he divided his forces, but the choice nearly cost him his life. Ten miles south of Kadesh, the Egyptian army captured two warriors claiming to be deserters from the Hittite army. They told the pharaoh that the Hittites were over 100 miles away and too afraid to fight him. Pleased with the news, Ramses led his division to a forest just outside Kadesh. He set up camp and waited for the rest of his army to arrive before starting his attack on the city. But that night, his men captured two more Hittite soldiers, and they revealed the truth. The Hittite army wasn't cowering a hundred miles off. Instead, the Hittites were just on the other side of Kadesh, waiting to launch a surprise attack. Ramses' enemy was just a few miles away, and one of his divisions was completely isolated. He sent messengers to his other divisions, ordering them to move in and bring reinforcements. Then he prepared to face the coming storm himself. Just minutes after sending out the messengers, 2,500 Hittite chariots thundered out from behind Kadesh. They struck hard and fast, but not at Ramses' fortified camp. Instead, 
the Hittites sped across the plain and intercepted the isolated division of Egyptian soldiers. Seeing the impending attack, thousands of Egyptian soldiers ran for their lives, including some of Pharaoh's own vanguard troops. The Hittites took the opportunity to press their advantage. After chasing down the isolated division, they burst into the central camp. They focused their primary attack on the tents of Ramses' generals. According to Ramses' own account of the battle, he was completely isolated. He prayed to Amun, asking the great god to intervene. Moments later, Ramses claimed he felt the strength of the gods swell within him. Filled with divine power, he mounted his chariot and plunged into the enemy army alone. He claimed he defeated them all single-handedly. He later said, I raised my voice to shout to my soldiers, Behold, I am victorious, me alone, for Amun is my helper, his hand is with me. But you have all been cowards. However, the truth was a little more complex. When the Hittite chariot stormed into his camp, Ramses did jump into his chariot, but he was far from alone. He rallied many of his personal bodyguards to fight alongside him. Impressively, Ramses and his small contingent struck down Hittites left and right. They managed to hold the remnants of his army together. But he was still isolated from his other divisions, including his elite charioteers on the coast. No matter how hard he and his men fought, they were still completely surrounded by the Hittites. Until a thunderous roar echoed over the horizon. Just as Ramses felt the jaws of defeat closing in on him, a phalanx of glittering Egyptian chariots appeared. It was the reserve force just in the nick of time. Inspired by their arrival, the rest of Ramses' army regrouped. Rallying and cheering, the Egyptians turned on the Hittites and drove them out of their camp. Then they pushed forward, intent on defeating the enemy who'd ambushed them. Meanwhile, the Hittite king, Muatali, watched these events unfold from a safe distance. He was shocked to see the appearance of Ramses' charioteers. He was also furious that his men were retreating just at the moment of victory over the pharaoh. Hoping to rescue the situation, Muatali ordered a second wave of his chariots into the fight. However, Ramses' forces were now brimming with confidence. They fended off this second wave and continued to hammer at the Hittite forces. They seemed unstoppable, eventually pressing their army back toward the Orontes River. There, many Hittite warriors drowned while their chariots floated away. During this battle, King Muatali's two own brothers died alongside the commander of his bodyguards and many high-ranking officers. Ramses had held his ground at the very brink of defeat. What should have been a crushing defeat turned into an impressive victory. But it was only temporary. Ramses knew the battle wasn't over yet. He was certain that the next morning would bring even more bloodshed, and perhaps even his death. Coming up, the final battle at Kadesh. Hi, it's Richard, and I'm thrilled to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, 
Parcast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's based on the very popular Cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more. Exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. This book is a must-read for any true crime fan. There are limited copies available, so don't wait. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who joined them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. In 1275 BCE, Pharaoh Ramses II saved the Egyptian army from annihilation near Kadesh in modern-day Syria. However, his enemy, the Hittite army, was still intact. After the first day of fighting, both sides knew the battle wasn't finished. That night was long and restless. Ramses regrouped with his chariot division while the Hittites tended to their wounded. Once the sun rose, the two enemy kings, Ramses and Muatali, led their forces back onto the Kadesh battlefield. For hours, the two sides clashed in bloody combat. The archers riding on the Egyptian chariots picked away at the solid rows of Hittite foot soldiers. However, they were unable to break through the line and deal a decisive blow to end the battle. Ramses finally realized he couldn't overcome the unbroken Hittite defense and ordered a retreat to his camp. King Muatali knew he was also in no position to destroy the Egyptians. Both sides had fought to a standstill. The Hittite king sent Ramses a peace envoy, suggesting a ceasefire. Swallowing his pride, Ramses accepted. He marched his battered, gloomy army back to Egypt. They had failed to defeat the Hittites or recapture Kadesh. They won neither glory nor seized any plunder. To most of Ramses' men, it seemed as if the whole expedition had been for nothing. However, Ramses still claimed it as a victory. He truly believed that he'd fought with the power of a god and single-handedly saved the Egyptian army. He commissioned both a detailed historical account and an epic poem recounting the battle. Both of these insisted that the Battle of Kadesh was an Egyptian victory, and it was all thanks to the pharaoh's personal valor. To accompany the epic poem and prose account, Ramses also had his artists recreate the battle in a series of pictorial reliefs. These show Ramses alone and enormous, taking on the whole Hittite army by himself. 
The series of reliefs were even carved onto at least five major temples. Thanks to these widespread engravings, the Battle of Kadesh is one of the best recorded battles in all of ancient Egypt's history. However, despite Ramses' claims to the contrary, the Hittites won the Battle of Kadesh. They held the city and afterward regained control of nearby Amaru. They even marched south and took additional territory from Ramses in Lebanon. Inspired by the apparent Egyptian weakness, several other vassal lords threatened rebellion. They chafed under the pharaoh's hegemony and saw a chance to break free of Egypt. But Ramses refused to allow this dissent and was compelled to lead further expeditions in the Levant. By most accounts, it seems that in the eighth or ninth year of his rule, Ramses led his forces into modern-day Israel and Lebanon. He'd ceded land to the Hittites, but now he was determined to regain territory. He marched inland and retook the cities of Dapur and Tunip, which hadn't been under Egyptian control for over a century. With these campaigns, Ramses embarked on a period of more direct control over Egypt's foreign territories. Under previous pharaohs, Egypt's administrative presence in the Levant was limited. But Ramses ordered the construction of official residences, military garrisons, and temples devoted to Egyptian gods. A similar program was carried out in Nubia. Ramses commissioned at least seven temples there, including a famous one at Abu Simbel. With these constructions in the Levant and Nubia, Ramses marked the four distant corners of Egypt's territory. The widespread garrisons and temples were the ultimate display of his kingdom's supremacy. But after Ramses marked his borders, the Hittites continued to raid Egyptian territory. There were repeated skirmishes between the two armies, though neither side appeared willing to engage in a pitched battle like Kadesh. The ongoing fighting sapped strength from the Hittites at a critical time. While they raided Egyptian lands, they were losing territory to the Assyrians based in northern Mesopotamia. To make things worse for the Hittites, sometime after the Battle of Kadesh, King Muatali died suddenly. This sparked a succession crisis between his son, Yurhai Teshub, and his brother, Hattusili. Eventually, Yurhai Teshub was forced to flee to Egypt where his former enemy gave the exiled prince refuge. When Hattusili demanded that Ramses hand over Yurhai Teshub, the pharaoh refused. For a moment, it seemed that both sides were poised to fight another all-out war. But in truth, neither king had the stomach for it. After all, the repeated military campaigns in the Levant were a considerable drain on pharaoh's resources. And Hattusili recognized that the expanding Assyrian kingdom was a greater threat to him than Egypt. So, in 1259 BCE, the Egyptians and Hittites finally decided to hammer out a peace treaty. Both parties agreed to respect each other's spheres of influence and to a defensive alliance. Ramses, who was now middle-aged, also swore that he would recognize Hattusili's son as heir thus removing his support from Yurhai Teshub. The two kings invoked the gods of their respective countries and wrote the treaty on matching silver tablets. 
Some 15 to 16 years after the Battle of Kadesh, the Egyptians and Hittites finally made peace. Despite the years of fighting, once the treaty was signed, the two kingdoms became fast friends. Personal letters and gifts were freely exchanged. The Hittite queen wrote to Egyptian queen Nefertari and even called her sister. Later, when Hattusili complained that some of Ramses' letters had an arrogant tone, the pharaoh sent gifts as an apology. Some of these gifts were medical supplies, as Egyptian doctors were particularly renowned in the ancient world. But when Hattusili asked Ramses to send a doctor who could cure his sister's infertility, Ramses scoffed. He wrote back, remarking on the age of the king's sister. He said, she is 60. No one can produce medicine to make her fertile. But, of course, if Ra and the weather god should wish it, I will send a good magician and an able physician, and they will prepare some fertility drugs for her anyway. Ramses granted the request, but he had also been upset about the quality of Hattusili's gifts. Instead of having his old enemy feel slighted, King Hattusili made amends by offering his daughter as a new bride for Ramses. It remains unclear how Ramses felt about the Hittite princess, but he was very pleased with the massive dowry that she brought with her. Considering the astronomical costs of his endless building projects, Ramses needed all the money he could get. Taking another wife to pay for his costs seemed like a simple answer. In autumn 1246 BCE, the Hittite princess left her parents' home and made the long journey to Egypt. She was accompanied by a tremendous dowry of gold, servants, and livestock. Once this procession reached Kadesh, Ramses dispatched soldiers and bureaucrats to meet her and escort her the rest of the way. When the princess reached his capital of Pyramus a few months later, Ramses eagerly accepted her dowry and sent her to his harem. The princess was just one of many women who lived in Ramses' harem. Some of these women were often held against their will or without any access to outsiders. Most were expected to satisfy the pharaoh's sexual demands and provide him with as many children as possible. This ensured that he would never lack a legitimate heir to the throne. But having many offspring also set up an inevitable power struggle once Ramses died. And that struggle would be far more destructive than anyone could have predicted. Soon, Ramses' decline would bring about an age of chaos. Coming up, Ramses' successors struggle to hold the empire together. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Anytime fitness is for real people with real fitness goals. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us aren't training for marathons or half marathons or even half half marathons. Only time most of us are running at all is if we're trying to make a connecting flight. 
Wouldn't have been late if we didn't stop to buy a headphone dongle. Point is, you gotta be ready. You do not want to deal with rebooking. Anytime Fitness, where real people help you make real progress. Join today and get a plan for training, nutrition, and recovery. Now back to the story. In early 1245 BCE, Ramses II welcomed the latest addition to his harem. She was a princess from the Hittite Empire and joined the ranks of the many women living under the rule of the pharaoh's court. Many of these women were expected to sexually satisfy the king, but not all of them. The harem could also serve as a residence for unattached female members of the royal household. These included widows, unmarried relatives, daughters, aunts, and innumerable servants. And although Ramses made frequent use of his harem, the most influential woman of his court was his chief royal wife, Nefertari. She bore at least ten children for the pharaoh, but none of them outlived him. Nefertari also died before Ramses, sometime around 1250 BCE. Though Ramses may have had deep affection for her, we cannot know for certain. Little is known of Nefertari apart from her royal title. No matter his emotions for Nefertari, after her death, Ramses saw a need to promote a new great royal wife. So he turned to his harem and seems to have brought forth a new wife named Isetnofret. It seems even less is known of Isetnofret than Nefertari. However, records show that she was the mother of several of Ramses' favorite children out of the over 100 kids he is said to have fathered. This exceptional fertility was partly due to his longevity. Tradition had it that a pharaoh would celebrate his said festival, or royal jubilee, after 30 years of rule, and then another every three or four years after that. Very few pharaohs made it to 30 years of rule. Their said festivals were significant milestones, and having more than one was rare. Ramses celebrated 13 of these festivals. It was like inaugurating the same president over a dozen times. These celebrations proved his reign to be longer than almost any other pharaoh. But while Ramses was in power for decades, many of the details of his later years are lost to us. What we do know is that after his second said festival, the later half of his reign was far more subdued. With peace established on Egypt's borders and his great building projects complete, Ramses sank into old age and infirmity. His teeth rotted and caused him frequent pain. Meanwhile, arthritis stiffened his joints and forced him to use a cane. Though Ramses never appointed a co-regent like many other aging pharaohs, he did steadily delegate power to his 13th son, Merentah. By the end of his father's reign, Merentah, who was in his late 60s, was essentially running the country. After one of the longest, most spectacular reigns of any pharaoh, Ramses II died around 90 years old in August of 1213 BCE, the 67th year of his rule. His tomb had been constructed and waiting empty for years. Now, 
Messengers hurried to Thebes with instructions to make it ready. It was likely filled with furniture, chariots, jewelry, food, clothing, and the miniature Shabti figurines that would become Ramsay's servants in the afterlife. However, the specific contents are uncertain, as very little of his tomb has survived to the modern day. Meanwhile, as his tomb was prepared in the south, his body was prepared at Pyramus. The corpse was stripped and ritualistically cleaned with sodium carbonate and water from the Nile in preparation for mummification. This process customarily took 70 days. First, his brain was removed via his nose. Then his abdominal organs, except the kidneys, were extracted. They were cleansed, coated in resin, and wrapped in linen before finally being stored in four separate jars. Traditionally, the heart was left in a person's chest. According to Egyptian belief, it would need to be weighed in the court of Osiris, the god of the dead. But Ramses' morticians made a mistake and accidentally removed his heart when they pulled out his lungs. They had to sew the heart back into his body using gold thread. For some reason, they replaced it on the right side of Ramses' chest rather than the anatomically correct left side. The next step was to fill the body with stuffing and let it sit for 40 days. Once this was done, the body was transferred to the House of Purification, where the stuffing was replaced with resin-soaked linen. The morticians proceeded to stuff Ramsay's nostrils with peppercorns, sew up his abdomen, and massage him with oils. Next, he needed to be wrapped, a lengthy and elaborate process accompanied by the invocation of spells and the use of protective amulets. Once Ramses was tightly bound in bandages, all that remained was to transfer the body to Thebes. Sixty-six years had passed since young Ramses accompanied the body of his father Seti on its final journey to Thebes. Now it was time for his successor, his elderly son Merintah, to do the same for Ramses. From Thebes to the tomb, the pharaoh's body was dragged on a wooden sled by unblemished bulls on a road sprinkled with milk. The funeral procession included high-ranking government officials, family members, professional mourners, and two actresses portraying the goddesses Isis and Nephthys. According to Egyptologist Joyce Tildesley, once at the tomb, the procession was met with ritualistic dancers and a priest, who wore a mask of the jackal-headed god Anubis. Then Merintah performed the ancient and solemn opening of the mouth ritual. Using various sacred implements, Merintah touched his father's eyes, ears, nose, and mouth. This was considered opening the way for Ramses to journey to the afterlife. There was another significant purpose to this ritual. The ceremony also confirmed that the crown had passed from father to son. For over 40 years under Ramses, Egypt had known relative peace. But that was about to change. Famine, plague, environmental changes, and economic collapse were all destabilizing the Mediterranean world. These problems encouraged desperate nations to attack large, wealthy kingdoms like Egypt. 
Despite his advanced age, Merenta was determined to meet these growing challenges. Early in his reign, he led an army to the Levant, quelling unrest there and reaffirming Egyptian hegemony. No sooner had this fire been extinguished than a far more serious threat emerged in the West. Libyan nomads and mysterious bands of pirates we now call the Sea Peoples launched a full-blown invasion of Egypt. They sought to do more than simply raid the Nile Delta. They intended to conquer it. Merintah brought his army to the outskirts of the Delta and fought a bloody battle there. It was a victory where over 6,000 enemy warriors were killed. Afterwards, Merintah inflicted a grave punishment on the prisoners of war who were impaled on stakes while still alive. Merintah had secured his borders for the moment, but the Mediterranean was still unstable. The long battle to protect Egypt had only just begun. In the decades to come, Egypt's pharaohs were confronted by the kingdom's own economic downturn, corruption, natural disasters, and political upheaval. Amidst this chaos, the long reign of Ramses II came to be seen as a golden age of stability, defined by prosperity and royal power. Thus, his successors eagerly and desperately attempted to model themselves after Ramses the Great. In all, nine successors took the name Ramses, hoping to emulate their namesake. The last, Ramses XI, ruled from approximately 1104 to 1075 BCE, over 100 years after Ramses the Great's death. Today, Ramses II remains one of the most famous and celebrated pharaohs, as much for his strength and energy as for his megalomania. Thanks in part to the famous poem Ozymandias by Percy Shelley, Ramses is known as the archetypal tyrant whose vanity is destined to crumble in the sands. While Ramses raised his monuments out of a sense of vanity, these constructions nevertheless projected a sense of wealth, power, and confidence that ancient Egypt lost after his reign. It's also remarkable that much of Ramses' image was self-made. His actual accomplishments were sparse. The glorious Battle of Kadesh was, in fact, an embarrassing blunder. Instead of a daring conqueror, Ramses was a master at self-promotion. Even 3,000 years on, Ramses II is still seen as mighty and domineering, a testament to his prolific celebration of himself, even at the cost of his empire. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Among the many sources we used, we found Ramses by Joyce Tildesley and The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt by Toby Wilkinson incredibly useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. 
This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, edited by Tony Goodman and Andrew Messer, with fact-checking by Adriana Romero and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, it's Richard, and I'm thrilled to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, Parcast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. It's based on the very popular Cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. This book is a must-read for any true crime fan. There are limited copies available, so don't wait. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who joined them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.